Hello, you're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Thank you once more for listening to the ministry of Let the Bible Speak. Today we're recommencing our series of studies in the opening chapters of Revelation. We've been considering these chapters and the encouragement that they bring to a suffering church. And today is similar as we consider some more of the details in chapter 7 and how those details encourage the church that they are safe and secure in their union with Christ Jesus. At the close of today's broadcast, we'll also hear Mr. Stephen Greer singing the, the beautiful hymn, Come Thy Fount of Every Blessing. It's so important that we live conscious of what we enjoy in Christ Jesus, now and indeed forevermore. May God bless his word to you all today. Well, we're going to turn tonight to Revelation chapter 7. Um, we'll just read the first four verses. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on a tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And they heard the number of them which were sealed, and they, and they were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Amen. May God again bless his word to our souls tonight. Again, last time we were together in this fashion, we began to look at Revelation chapter 7, noting that it continues with the sixth seal. Now, the sixth seal is mentioned there, verse 12, chapter 6, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And so chapter 7 continues with the sixth seal, the seventh not coming until the first verse of chapter 8. And so given the fact that chapter 6 closes uh, with the description of the wrath of the Lamb, we are seeing that in chapter 7, the wrath of the Lamb, Judgment Day, is accompanied by the safety of God's people, all being gathered together to worship forever and ever around the throne of the Lamb. A picture of the triumphant church, the glorified church, all in unity, no diversity, but in unity, praising as a company the Lamb that was slain. It is a wonderful description, a wonderful picture, a picture that we'll see repeated in Revelation in later chapters. And you get to chapter 21, 22, you see the same promises being given at the end of the age described in those concluding chapters. And so as we are looking at this chapter, we're considering a view of the glorified church, or at least of God's work in bringing the glorified church together. And last time we thought about their safety, verses 1 through 3, giving this description of, of the four angels holding back the winds of God's wrath. 
There is one angel, verse number two, I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried a loud voice, the four angels hurt not the earth till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It is a command, a divine command to restrain the outpouring of the wrath of God until the 144,000 are sealed, sealed in their foreheads as the servants of God. As I said, the wind pictures God's wrath, indicating again that we are living in a day of God's restrained wrath. All the elect will be sealed and will be gathered, and they ultimately will be delivered from the wrath to come. Is that not how Paul describes the church in Thessalonica? They've been converted, turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and they've been delivered from the wrath to come. And there is that thought of serving that leads us on to the sealing of this company. We're told, verse number three, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads, and I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And so there are some questions that come. Who are these sealed? What is the sealing where are they in terms of, of this present experience? All those questions come in light of these verses. Well, let's begin by thinking a little bit about this company and the, well, who are they? Well, we're told, verse number three, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. The idea of God's servants, again, repeats itself throughout uh, the book of Revelation, even back to the very first chapter, the opening verse, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. The servants of God, those who have been delivered from the slavery of Satan and brought into the service of the King of Kings, the Lord. These are God's servants. One of the things that is certainly challenging in this chapter is when you look at verse number four and you see a number mentioned and then you get to verse number nine, there's a multitude which no man can number is stated. The question obviously arises, is this the same company or are these different companies in view? Let me just give you my assertion to begin with. And it is my conviction that this is the same company in view in two different ways. The 144,000 is a number, and as all numbers in Revelation, it is a symbolic number. They're all symbolic in some sense. And so the number is not indicating, as some cults believe, a literal number of those who are the servants of God. It's a symbolic number. The multiplication of 12 would certainly point us towards the children of Israel. That said, verse number 4, all the tribes of the children of Israel. But even that brings some difficulties, because not all of the historical 12 tribes are mentioned. Joseph's included, and Ephraim is absent, for example. Gad is there, but there are other ones who are mentioned, or who are absent, sorry. And so there are certainly indications that this is symbolic. Now, what the reasons for discrepancies in the names of the tribes, I, I cannot be certain. But it certainly indicates this is not a description of the historical people of God in the Old Testament. It's a symbol. 
And so therefore, it's not impossible that the symbol that's included, the number 144,000, is the same company, verse 9, that multitude that no man can number. The point being that the reader is being encouraged that the church of Christ is not only 144,000, it is a vast number that goes beyond the tribes of Israel, but includes all nations, kindreds, and people all coming together around the throne. Now, there is one helpful clue here, and it has this sense of service. Verse 3, the servants of our God. But the multitude which no man can number are said later on to serve God. Verse number 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This term service, I think, helps us and ought to help us in understanding the company that meet around the throne. Clearly, 144,000 and the multitude, these are those who are saved, they are redeemed. But they serve God, they worship God. The term that's used in verse number 15 is the term that's used in Hebrews for Old Testament worship. It's also used over in chapter 22. Turn across to chapter 22 in the verse number 3, where people are in no doubt regarding the company mentioned in chapter 22. It's all of the glorified church. And then it says there in verse number 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Same terms that are used in chapter 7, are used in chapter 22 regarding the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem that comes from heaven down on earth. This company are those who serve the Lord around the throne. The parallels are so convincing that I am in absolutely no doubt that the company in chapter 7 is the same company in Revelation chapter 22. And they're serving God. Now, why is that significant? Well, it is so because of how Paul describes the church in Philippians chapter 3. Turn back there, please. Philippians chapter 3. Before you even get there, it's worth just mentioning in passing that if you see this company around the throne in Revelation 7 as Jews and then Gentiles, you're putting a dichotomy between the people of God that does not exist in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, not Jew nor Gentile, but one in Christ Jesus. And so immediately in the New Testament, we see a, a unified company involved. But look at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is dealing with this issue of those who were saying they were Jews, but they were not truly Israel. And so verse number 3, he asserts, for we are the circumcision. Taking that Old Testament term and saying, we now, both Paul, yes, a Jew, but also the Gentile believers in Philippi, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, no confidence in the flesh and rejoicing in Christ Jesus, those are terms for saving faith. Those are the terms of faith whereby a man is justified. And so later on, Paul will describe his own journey into discovering the righteousness of God, which is an alien righteousness, not his own. 
And so these are people who have come to trust in Christ. They are rejoicing in Christ Jesus. But verse number 3 also says that they worship God in the Spirit. And the word that is used for worship there in chapter 3 of Philippians, that word worship is the same word for serve that's used in Revelation chapter 7. It's that unique word reserved in many ways for Old Testament worship in Hebrews, indicating that the true people of God are those who are saved by grace. They've been found by the Father they are those who worship God in spirit and in truth. They are the people of God. Not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles in blessed unity in Christ Jesus, their single head. One covenant, one branch, one mediator, one head, one redeemer, one faith, one baptism, all the ones in which are unity. That unity is then seen in the description of the people of God in Revelation chapter 7. They are those who serve. And so we think of all of this in light of the New Testament's teaching, neither Jew nor Gentile. Ephesians chapter 2, we're brought nigh by the blood of Christ. We're no longer strangers to the covenant of promise. We're brought nigh by the blood of Christ. And so the true Israel are those who've come to saving faith in the Messiah. And hence you see the description of Israel in Revelation chapter 7. It is entirely consistent to see Israel described in the early portion and then the multitude of all nations and kindreds and people to see those as the same company because Gentiles are brought into the covenant of God with Israel and they're part of that covenant community. The true Israel of God. They are those who serve. So this company... The company that are sealed is simply the company of the redeemed. Those who trust in Christ and not in works, those who worship in spirit and not in form, they are those who are genuinely converted, the people of God. That people are then said to be sealed. Who are they? They are God's people, and they are said to be sealed in their foreheads, verse number 3. Now, this concept of sealing is not new to us in our studies in Revelation. Now, the verb form that's used here is used in the noun form in chapter 5 regarding the scroll, the book, that was sealed with those seven seals. Remember we said about the idea of a wax mark? Wax poured upon a document or upon this book and then stamped with the signet ring of the authority, the king's decree in Revelation chapter 5. Now the seal, the mark, is upon the foreheads of the servants of gods. Now, we see that as being significant in Revelation. Turn across to chapter 14. You see, there are two things that you must understand in light of the seal. The seal indicates ownership and guarantees protection. Ownership is mentioned here in chapter 14, verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty-four, hundred and, sorry, hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So you see the seal here is the seal of the father's name. You're mine. You belong to me. I'm going to seal you on your forehead, indicating that you're my possession. God 
demonstrating in grace his ownership of those brought into faith in Christ Jesus. A wonderful thing to see. But then back in chapter 9, you see the additional thought of protection. Revelation chapter 9, verse number 4, here it's in the negative. Again, similar scenes that we see in Revelation chapter 7. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. See, these are people who are not knowing the protection of God. They don't have the seal of God in their foreheads, but those who do have the seal of God, they know divine protection. They know the protecting grace of God in their lives. The question comes, if this seal is a mark of God's ownership, guaranteeing God's protection, when does it occur? Is this something that's just happening when the wrath of the Lamb comes? Is that what's in view here? Is it just when the wrath of the Lamb comes, all things pause for a second until the people of God are sealed in their foreheads? Well, I don't believe so. First of all, we belong to God the minute we're born of God. Oh, I know in one sense that all of creation belongs to God, but we also know in the New Testament we're bought with a price, aren't we? We're not our own. And what Paul teaches in Corinthians, that we're, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price, the, the blood of Christ, the purchase price of our redemption. And so this sealing is not something that happens just as we enter glory. You see, you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 22 speaks of this seal. Uh, go back to verse 20 itself. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen unto the glory of God by us. And now he which establisheth us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. A sense that the sealing of God has already occurred by the gift of the Spirit of God. I wondered in part of this, again, I don't believe they can uh, stay with any dogmatic assertion, but the fifth angel is mentioned having the seal of God. I wonder, is that a term for the Spirit, the messenger of God? The Holy Spirit has the seal of God. He then instructs the angels, hold back the wind until we seal the company, because the Spirit of God is so significant in this sealing. God has given us the Spirit, the earnest as part of this process of sealing us. It's interesting that John Gill, the commentator, when he makes comments on 2 Corinthians 1, he talks about property, security, and protection. He's not commenting on Revelation 7. But the themes of ownership and protection in Revelation 7, those very themes are those that Gill highlights in his comments on 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Of course, the same thought of sealing occurs also in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 4. We're not to grieve the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So surely it is consistent with the Word of God that we belong to God prior to entering glory. We belong to God when we are bought with the price of Christ's blood. That sealing with the Spirit is not some future thing. We enjoy that sealing as we are born of God, born of the Spirit of God. We have these blessings, these assurances that we are the people of God. 
Hendrickson says this, This sealing is the most precious thing under heaven. Scripture speaks of the seal in a threefold sense. First of all, a seal protects against tampering. He refers to the tomb of Jesus sealed. Secondly, the seal marks ownership. We've said this already. We read of Song of Solomon 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon thy heart. Thirdly, a seal certifies genuine character. These are the threefold sense of the seal. And the Christian is sealed, says Hendrickson, in this threefold sense. The Father has sealed him. The Son has sealed him. The Spirit hath sealed him. These are the blessings we enjoy as the people of God. We belong to God, bought with a price, secure, safe from the wrath of God that is to come. So back to Revelation chapter 7 as we close our thoughts this evening. Listen again to the words of verse number 3. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to think of the fact that we're, we're owned of God. We are sinners, worthy to be despised of God, not bought of God, not treasured of God, not his valued possession that he'd put his name upon our foreheads. This ownership is precious. For God to own something is to indicate again how he values that. And God is not careless with his property. And so the wrath of God is held back. The people of God are sealed and secure. So when the day comes, they can join that multitude around the throne and before the Lamb of God. Never lose sight of the privilege of being bought of God sealed of God, belonging to God. And surely in light of that sealing, the fact that the Spirit of God is significant in the role, of course, indicates that when we're sealed of God and sealed in our foreheads, we belong to God. By the Spirit of God, we take on the family likeness. We belong to the Father. And the Spirit works in us in such a way that we take on the likeness of the family. We become more and more like the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit of God that seals us is the Spirit of God that sanctifies us and transforms us. But as we meet together tonight to pray and to call upon the Lord, that simple word, till, is such an encouragement. The wrath of the Lamb has not yet been realized on this earth. Hence, there are still the elect of God to be sealed in their foreheads. And when you consider the parallels with Philippians chapter 3 and the presence of faith, we know that faith comes by hearing. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so as we live in the days of restrained grace, we see this text as a call to evangelism, as a call to missions, as a call to confident prayer that God is still saving his people, sealing them in their foreheads. And he's going to do that until the day comes when the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed upon this earth. And so we are living in days of restrained wrath, days of gospel opportunity, Days whereby we can pray for the coming of the kingdom. Pray for the gathering of precious souls. Pray for those who are dead in sins. 
to be made like unto Christ Jesus. And so may God stir our hearts in light of these words. May it encourage us and drive us to your knees in prayer. Thank the Lord for saving our souls and call upon him to save others by his grace and his mercy for the glory of his Son. Amen. May God indeed use his word in our hearts tonight for his name's sake. Amen and amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.